0: On the ride of a lifetime, I'm on a ship that's sailing to uncharted shore, and I want.
1: from the Mecca, Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah. This is Heart of the Matter, where institutional religion meets Jesus Christ face-to-face. I'm your host, Sean McCraney, standing with two dear old friends (laughs) and supporters of the ministry, all the way from Torox, Spain. Is that good? Muy bien, muy bien. bien. (laughs) Christopher and Arthur, great friends of the ministry. Have you had an enjoyable Thanksgiving? Celebration yeah, out absolutely. in Utah. Yeah, it was, one, yeah, it was, one it was wonderful. Yeah. Very good. They do television in Spain. They're chefs. They do real estate. They love the Lord Jesus Christ, and they have great diet plans too. They shared with me the other day. I don't know why they shared it with me. I'm the I'm the perfect picture of of health. And yet, while we were here, they're saying, "Sean, you know, if you just cut out this." <laughs> We love you guys. Thanks for being with us. Be careful stepping off. Hey, winter special announcement. You know about it. Four CDs coming to you. Uh, I was a born again Mormon, shield of faith. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight where Mormonism meets biblical Christianity face to face and an advanced copy in spring of the next book, which is called Giving God a Chance to Make Sense. It's part one of seven books. All to you at your door for $52.29 plus shipping and handling. So if you need stocking stuffers uh, for people who are interested in these topics, uh, please feel free. got an email this week from someone saying, I've been pandering for money too much. And this is more evidence that I've lost my way. Uh, Part of it is by talking about these products. First of all, I hate doing these commercials. I hope you can see that. Uh, I just as soon give everything away, but they cost us money to produce. So if people can afford them, they can buy them. If they can't, we give them to you for free. I mean, if all you do is ask, we will do that. So secondly, our ministry is in a position uh, and always has been in a position Uh, To let you know that there is no obligation to ever do anything, no pressure at all. In fact, we reject anyone who wants to support us who's on a limited fixed income or who is elderly or cannot make ends meet. Help yourself before you give to a church or ministry. We've always said this. So if I'm coming off as pandering, I apologize. I, I'm really quite sensitive to this area, and so I want to be clearly understood on our long-running policy toward financial support. Okay? All right, good. Let's move forward. We've got a lot to talk about once again to present, uh, talking more about eternal punishment. It's going to be redundant for some of you, but, you know, sometimes that can be a good way to learn. So let's have a prayer and get right to it. Lord, we, uh, we, we want to know truth. We want to be in your will. Help us to be better Christians, help us to set aside all the stuff in our flesh, whether it be anger or whether it be pretentiousness or whatever it is, and just try to be real with each other, real with you, as we talk about these subjects here tonight. We're thankful for our volunteers who make the program work and for uh, those who support us in prayer and other ways. So we love you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Based on the Bible, the world, and meaning every individual who has ever been born or ever will be born, can be divided cleanly into two camps. Those who are saved from what scripture calls the second death and those who are not. We're not gonna address all the nuances to those who are saved here, including growth and personal sanctification and uh, what this means to them after this life, and producing fruits, and, and, and mansions, and all that. But we're going to talk about these two giant general groups, those who are saved from the second death, and those who are not. So, we look at John 8:51, and Jesus plainly says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, If a man keep my saying he shall never see death, okay? If, keep my saying, they will never see death. So we know Jesus wasn't speaking about physical death there because we all physically die, right? So Jesus was talking about, if you keep my saying, which is believe on me, then you will never experience the second death, which occurs after this life and happens in a very specific location called the Lake of Fire, and this is what Revelation calls the lake of fire. It mentions the lake of fire, which is the second death. That's what it calls it. When Christians speak of being saved, I would suggest it means from this second death. Or as Jesus says, because we have kept his saying, we will never see, see this second death. Last week, I got an email from a bloke who has already taken our teachings on eternal punishment and lumped it under the idea that everyone is saved. That's what his email suggested. Listen, listen, listen really closely. Are you listening? I am in no way, shape, or form suggesting or teaching that all people are saved. This is not what I have said, and total reconciliation does not convey this teaching in the least. I hope you heard me. I ardently maintain that there is a hell and a lake of fire where those who die who have not believed will go. They are not saved from these places as Christians are by his grace through faith because they die faithless. You're saved by grace through faith. If you don't have faith, you're not going to be saved from hell and the second death. So, for simplicity's sake, it appears that every individual who has ever walked on this earth or will walk on this earth, when they die physically, they will either go to heaven and enter into life eternal, or they will go to hell and wait in what Scripture says is torments, over their refusal to appropriately receive God's grace offered them by the blood of, uh, the shed blood of his son. We're gonna talk about hell's location in the coming, uh, in, in a minute maybe, and then in the coming weeks. But now let's ask ourselves this reoccurring question that's come up the past couple of weeks Did God know before he created anything or anyone who would die and go to heaven? and who would die and go to hell? Of course he did. He had to have, if he's God as he's described in the Bible. Perhaps more to the point we should ask is, then why on earth did God create all of us, knowing full well before one material thing was created or appeared, that most of his creations would reject his solution named Jesus Christ, and instead enter into this miserable place called hell and the second death? And how are we to reconcile his foreknowledge of all these outcomes with the fact that scripture not only calls him love, but calls him the ultimate expression of love? How do we reconcile these biblical facts with passages that Jesus that where Jesus says he will draw all men to himself. What do we do? What do we say with all that? How do we reconcile where God says it is his will that none should perish? What do we do with that? So let's take our two major groups and discuss them, beginning with those who go to heaven at physical death. Okay. Let's just talk about them just so we can make it really clear. From Scripture, it appears that God, amidst everything that could come into the mix, desires people who seek and love and want to know Him. And contrary to some strange man-made views that say otherwise, God wants us to choose Him freely. He does not point and force us to choose. He wants us to freely desire and want to choose him freely. Calvinists say otherwise. This freedom God gives echoes out from the Garden of Eden. Think about it. He gave Adam and Eve a choice to either eat of the fruit or not, to listen to him and love him and follow him or not. It was a choice. Or did he force them, you know? So if he gives the choice from the very beginning, the choice is still there for all of us. Since God knew who would choose him before creating them, did he create them to choose him and create everyone else to reject him? All things consider, taking in characteristics like freedom and justice and goodness and love into account. Any reasonable thinking person would have to say, no, God did not create a few to accept him and the majority to burn forever unless you're a Calvinist. If you're a Calvinist, you literally say, God created a few that he would save, not by their own choice, and the rest will burn to his glory. I I still don't know how that, that idea exists in really good believers, but it does. All things considered, He knew from the start and from the heart who would desire him and who wouldn't. We admit to that. Of those who truly desire him, who truly seek him from the heart, doesn't matter if they fail in their flesh or not, it's what they want from the heart for their faith, he gathers into heaven and they're saved from the second death. What are the benefits of belonging to this first group that go to heaven? We get an insight by looking at what scripture, how scripture refers to those who are in this group. Scripture calls them the elect. The chosen ones, the adopted, God's people, sons of God which includes daughters, light, sons of light, daughters of light, heirs of God, children and children of God, joint heirs with Christ, Israel, the righteous which comes by faith just so you don't get confused and start thinking you're all that, the ransomed of the Lord, the salt, God's sheep, trees of righteousness, vessels of honor, vessels of mercy, and I know there's many, many more. So we're not talking about said Christians who kind of just go in and out of church because that's what you do on Sunday every week, but those who really do believe him, that he exists, and they love him from their own choice, those who love as Jesus loved. When such believers die, they go to heaven, they escape hell and the second death which may follow. They have been saved from that. Not only do such escape afterlife woe and loss that will come in those places, but the very titles that Scripture assigns to them reveal a great deal about the benefits and blessings God gives to those people here who believe and there in the hereafter. These things include inner peace now that you can have, and that's a real gift I have Christians say, well, if everybody is going to be reconciled to God, what's the big deal? Do you not have peace in your life as a result of following Christ? Is it not some sort of blessing to you here? Some sort? There's the hope and expectation, uh, biblically-based promises that supposedly defy imagination that are waiting for Christians. They're not waiting for the, uh, those who are not saved. They're awaiting those who are saved. There's the fact that you know that you're God's child, you're God's children, sons and daughters, seed of Abraham, children of light. And we are being equipped to dwell in the light. A great blessing, a great benefit to be a Christian. And the fact that you enter heaven as a joint heir with Christ. I mean, that's what Romans says. You'll be a joint heir with Christ. That's the verbiage that Paul uses. Is there a price for this For this? For these blessings, absolutely. Scripture calls the price, it's death. It means death to the self out of love for God and man. Uh, I would be selling readers short if I didn't include the words of Jesus who said, straight doesn't mean straight like this. It means really a convoluted way. Straight is the gate, narrow is the way, few be there who find it. That's what he said. Okay? So, in the scope of how many are in the first group, it seems to be there's not gonna be that many relative to the rest of the world, all right? We can't forget those who do find him by, by and, and in humility and faith and love, they're not only God's children, sons and daughters, but they are going to be joint heirs with Christ. In today's evangelical world, there's this almost ubiquitous attitude that floats about that suggests that everyone who even just, even like, winks at Jesus is a son and daughter. And scripture suggests that there's a processional walk to all those who believe. John says it plainly. He says in the first, in, in the gospel of John, but as many as received him, so and he, as many as who believed on him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God even to them that believe on his name, which are born not of blood, meaning nationality or race, not of the will of the flesh, not through moral perfection or self-will, nor through the will of man, not through philosophy or religion, but of God. Listen very carefully, especially in light of what I'm now going to teach. I would strongly believe that anyone who dies without having faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, will never become a son or daughter, a joint heir with Christ after this life. Um, can someone die and go directly to heaven as a son or daughter without knowing the name of Jesus and all the facts about the good news of the Bible? I believe so. I think the Spirit can do that with with, with Muslims and, and anybody who is seeking God. I absolutely believe that. Uh, but Only God knows the heart of the departed, but we can say, please hear me, we can say, whoever dies and goes to heaven goes there because of Christ, because of his finished work and for no other reason and under no other name. So don't get that little exception wrong. When they die, they'll see, oh, I have been worshiping who is called Christ in English all this time. I didn't know that. So we are talking about some nuances here that get debated and argued. Uh... Add into the fact that if you are part of that group that goes to heaven, you are part of the group that escapes what seems to await the majority, which is supposed to be a very horrific, remorseful experience. And so we have great motivation to escape that and then try to seek truth and follow Christ now. I hope I've made a sound case for the benefit of being a Christian and seeking God in spirit and truth in this life, in allowing through faith and love for the self to take third place to God and others, and the hope that lies ahead for those who keep their eyes on Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. Don't allow yourself, because of what I'm about to now talk about, to ever believe God God's means of reconciling all to him suggests that being a Christian now is not significant. It is extremely significant. That's why we do what we do, to share him. We want to help people escape what awaits those who have rejected the call he's placed on everyone's life. We want to help them become sons and daughters. We want to help them experience the fellowship and the peace that you can have in this life. All those things that are so beautiful that God gives us through his son, That, you know, we want people to accept that, okay? All other facets of God's plan are for those who are not his and whom he knew would not be his sons and daughters, okay? Can't be forgotten. So what about this other group? What do we say, okay? We opened up with a quote. You didn't get it. This is what uh, Thomas Paine said. He said, belief in a cruel God makes a cruel man, That's a quote that we would have opened up. We couldn't find it. Jonathan Edwards, he's hailed as this guy who gave these great uh, speeches. He said this about what waits those. The pit is prepared. The fire is made ready. The furnace is now hot, ready to receive the wicked. The flames do now rage and glow. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much the same way as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. He will trample them beneath his feet with inexcusable fierceness. He will crush out their blood and will make it fly so that it will sprinkle his garment and stain all his raiment. This has kind of been the general attitude in the Christian world about what happens to that large group and the intent behind God in putting people in that large group. I would suggest that his intentions in putting people in the place that's not so great called hell and or the lake of fire is out of love and it's purposeful and it has a reason behind it which he foreknew from the beginning to suggest otherwise makes him a despot. It makes him someone that, man, that's a terrifying terrifying God who created all those people just to burn in there forever and ever and ever and suffer meaninglessly. So let's talk about that. I've stated that I divided the world up into two groups. In light of scripture, like John 12, 32, where Jesus says he will draw all men to himself, what can we say about this other group? Traditionally speaking, Christian writ large has maintained that believers go to heaven and unbelievers go to hell, and those destinations are permanent forever and ever and ever and ever. A baby that dies, and I know there's probably been billions Uh, I would guess, burning hell forever has been a standard in much of Christianity. Uh, That was once really pushed, especially by uh, guys like Calvin. Last week we gave a quote. that said, there's a long, long line of babies in hell. John Calvin. A non-Christian 12-year-old is sitting in a tree out in the country reading a book and he slips and falls and hits his head. Hell burning forever and ever and ever. An Ethiopian man, better yet, a man in panguitch who burned by his pastor or his bishop, has been alienated from God because of what other people have done in his name, decides, it, decides he's going to be a good, honest man. He's going to work hard. He's going to pay his taxes. He's going to live a, a, the best life he can. He has sinned, yes, dies, hell, forever, and ever, and ever, and ever, and God knew it. He knew it before he made him. He's happy <laughs> by it burning people, dangling them like spiders over hell, crushing their blood out so it spatters his clothes. I don't know how, how did reasonable people who read the Bible allow this to get into their heads and hearts? I used to accept these situations and the responses to them without reservation. So don't think I've changed this because I wanna make the gospel easier on people's ears. I used to believe, hey, if God, and I still believe, if God says, yes, Sean, most of the world, I will put in hell forever and ever, ever. God says it, I'm okay. You've got it, baby. I'm, I'm all for that plan. But that's not what the Bible says. We're gonna prove that. And if we can come to see that through the Bible, not because I'm saying it, it will alter the way we view the, the beautiful faith we have And it will transform us in the way that we view those who do not have him now. And it will give us a heart for them of let's help them and share in love and not get angry at them if they reject it and not be, ha, 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 you're going to really suffer because you didn't listen to me. But instead, it's like it changes the whole dynamic of how you are as a Christian. If you can see this, okay? Okay. Do any of the teachings make sense? Again, how does Scripture admit that God is love, all-knowing, all-powerful, desires that all would be saved, sent His Son to save the whole world? His Son said He would draw all men to Him. How do we understand that most of the world is, is, is not only lost forever from God, but will suffer eternally for their apparent choice? If you're a Calvinist, it wasn't even for their choice. It was because God elected them to do that, A faithlessness. We've come up with some interesting solutions over the span of Christianity. I suggest we challenge all of them and we use the Bible to do it. And let's begin with 1 Corinthians 15. Paul presents a picture and it's, it's nuanced. Listen to what he says and just, just kind of think, what's he saying here? You ready? Speaking of the resurrection from the dead, he says, beginning at verse 23, but every man in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterward, they that are Christ's at his coming. That's believers. Then comes the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. All, all, twice there. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. Again, all. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Does that include the second death that Scripture talks about? Think about it. For he has put all things under his feet, but when he said all things are put under him, it is manifest that he's accepted from this, which did put all things under him. Listen to this last verse. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him, meaning God, That has put all things under him that God may be all in all. Did you notice how many times all was mentioned there? And how the son, he's done his gig and he hands it to the father. He turns his thing back over to the father. The father's put all things in his hands. He takes it and when he's had victory over it, he hands it back to the father that God will be all in all. He's had victory over everything. Satan doesn't have victory over Christ. We, in our stupidity, in our flesh, we don't have victory over Christ. He has the victory, he's the victor. He's the one who won our souls. We recognize it here, we go to heaven. We refuse it here, we go until we learn about what, is, what God is and how you want to be with him. That's the purging, that's the, the process that is waiting those who go to the other place. We know hell's a reality. We know people go there, and we know it's a place paradoxically described as flame, but it's mostly described as a dark place. Uh, but we also have passages like 1 Timothy 2.4 that says that God will have all men be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. What do we do with these apparent contradictions in Scripture? Additionally, we know that Scripture says Jesus atoned for the sins of the whole world. And that God does some amazing things. We can see if you look at scripture to bring about his will to be all in all. Let me talk about one amazing thing to begin with. He carved out a nation. He elected them above all the other nations. Yeah, he elected them. He chose them. Nation of Israel. As a people, they were foreknown by God to be capable of doing and being a certain way. And he carved them out and he said, I'm gonna use you to bring about my goodwill. They brought forth the oracles, Paul says, the law, the scripture, they brought forth the Messiah. Not only to produce the Messiah, that nation killed the Messiah. God knew that. He established all things. He uses it all for his good to bring about his goodwill. He knew this. Now stay with me. When the nation of Israel were the elect and chosen... They really thought they were all that, didn't they? They thought we are the it. No one else is it. I mean, they looked down their noses on sinners for sure. The Gentiles were the great unwashed. Nobody had a right to God because the sun rose and set on our elected nation. And then when they learned that the Gentiles would be accepted of God, they resisted the notion They constantly tried to make the Gentiles, the great unwashed, become part of them because they were all that. And the apostles said, no, no, no. Contrary to their ideas and opinions and worldviews, the Lord opened the gates to everybody, didn't he? To all people. And then from both the house of Israel and those Gentiles, Christ has been gathering unto him a church. That's that firstborn. Those are the elect. Those are the people that I talked about a minute ago. The ones who will go to heaven. He's been calling since he ascended, calling and building his kingdom, right? And we are called to share the good news, to be the salt of the earth, city set on a hill, love as Jesus loved, all that stuff. That's why we're his children. To what end we do it to help bring God's will about just like the elected nation of Israel did? Is it possible? Think that just as the Jews thought they were all that and no one else had any place with God, that maybe Christians are doing the same thing, that maybe because we're the firstborn and, and the, of the church and that we're the bride of Christ and we've been blessed with the, uh, the knowledge of God and, and the faith and his spirit to have love for others, that when we look down on the rest of the world as going to hell forever and ever, we're doing the same thing the Jews said about us? Is it possible that we are just we're just blind to the fact that God is love and that he has a plan to reconcile all to him when we consider the fate of those who are not part of the first group those who don't go to heaven at death is it possible that those who go to the lake of fire once there will bow and confess that jesus is the christ and bring to fruition god's will that all will be saved that none would perish so that he will be all in all in the end? Have you considered it? Will you consider it? Why does Jesus remain at the right hand of God until a specific time, until all enemies are put under his feet? What does that mean? Do you know where the lake of fire is? We're gonna talk about that. What will it really look like? I mean, does it really make sense to you? Ask yourself, are you gonna say, well, God can't make sense to me? Jesus said to know him is life eternal. The know is gnosko. It means to know him. That means making sense of things. We're to worship him with all different parts of us, including our minds. Did you know that? He says with our minds. That's why we study. That's why we have the spirit. To know him. So if we're supposed to know him, how can we step back? Oh, you can't know him. You can't know these things. I think we can know he's love. And I think we can know he loves us a trillion times more than we love each other. And we can't comprehend that love. I fully embrace the idea that God is sovereign. His will will be done. Scripture supports the idea completely. So let's start building a case. I'm going to work through these quickly about God being sovereign. Let me present these to you. Psalms 1:15-3. But our God is in the heavens. He has done whatsoever he has pleased. Proverbs 19.21. There are many devices in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the counsel of the Lord, that shall stand. Jesus said, with God, all things are possible. Ephesians 1.11 puts a sharp end on this point. Speaking of Jesus, it says, In whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his own will. Well, the Calvinists love that one. It seems to suggest, listen, we were predestined to do what we are going to do, and it's irresistible. And if God chooses us, we are, we are, and if God doesn't choose us, we're not. Let's just keep going, okay? Revelations 4.11 says, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things for thy pleasure. They are and were created. Daniel 4.35 says he does according to his will. Psalms 24.1 said the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof the world and they that dwell therein. Doesn't just say the believers. Doesn't just say the elect. They, the world. Proverbs 16.4 says something interesting, something that troubles me. It says the Lord has made all things for himself, yea, even the wicked for the day of evil. All things. Listen to Isaiah 45, 5 through 9. I am the Lord. There is none else. There is no God beside me, Latter-day Saints. I girded thee, though thou hast not known me. They that may know from the rising of the sun from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord. There is none else. Duh. Period. Stop. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. Drop Down, You heavens from above and let the skies pour down righteousness. Let the earth open and let them bring forth salvation and let righteousness spring up together. I, the Lord have created it. Woe unto him that strives with his maker. Let the potsherd strive with the potsherds of the earth. Shall the clay say to him that fashioned it, what makest thou or thy work? He has no hands. Echoing these sentiments, Romans 9 21 says, has not the potter power over the clay? Of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor. So, from these passages, many, many more, we know God does whatever He pleases, that His counsels will stand with Him, all things are possible, that we are predestined according to the purpose of His works, after the counsels of His own will, and that He even created all things for His own pleasure, right? When we read in Proverbs that he made all things for himself, even the wicked, and that in Isaiah it says he created evil. In Romans 9 it says he has the power to create one vessel for honor and another for dishonor. What are we to think? It certainly sounds like God is more than just a sovereign God, but that he actually puppeteers and controls everything despotically. At least that's the way the Calvinists present him. But we have other passages that go contrary to this in terms of how we are and what we do. And who we are before him. James 1.3 says, Let no man say when he's tempted, I'm tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempts he any man. He's not out there doing all this. He uses it by his foreknowledge. Consider 1 John 1.5. This then is the message which we have heard of him and declaring unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. He is not diabolical. There is no darkness. There is only light. We have long maintained that God's will is done, but that his will is not that all would be reconciled to him. Why? Why did Calvin create this seemingly beautiful, diabolically beautiful system of theology that admits God is sovereign, but says in his sovereignty, he doesn't want to keep everyone from perishing? He wants people to perish. Why would that sovereign God desire that? I mean, if an evil, selfish human parent had five children in a burning building, that parent would wanna save all of them. That's what it means to be a parent. You don't say, well, I like Sam and Jody and Kim and Sue, but leave that butthead Stuart in the fire. You go in and you try to get all of them. And that's an evil, self-centered human being who feels that way toward dogs and cats too. And we think that we are more loving and compassionate and long-suffering than God. I would suggest, and I want to offer some passages to wrap this up, more coming next week, that God has some other ways. Listen to Isaiah 55, 8 through 11. I don't think that's right. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways. Thank God. We can take these words as God is saying, God, I am not as merciful and loving as you are. Or we could take it as I am far more merciful and loving than you are. Realizing that God is love and good, how are we to understand Isaiah 49, 9 through 11? Remember the former things of old that says, For I am God and there is none else, I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Is his pleasure to destroy or to save? If he will do all of his pleasure, you have to ask yourself, What would be God's pleasure? To me, it would be to keep all from perishing. Wouldn't it be for you? Or do you worship a God whose pleasure is to harm people? You have to decide what, what, did Christ, what was Christ like when he was on the earth? Was he there to harm or was he there to save? That's God in the flesh. What does Jeremiah 29, 29, 11 mean when he says, God says, for I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you an expected end What does it mean in the face of all this information when we read 2 Peter 3.19? The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. It doesn't say that he suggests all would be saved, but that all would come to repentance. Somehow we have to come to terms with this stuff because it means the difference. It means the difference between life and death in the Christian walk and how we approach other people with the good news of Jesus Christ. We're going to go to Jack and Sandy when we come back, but first take a look at this. I would be doing the Lord and every viewer a disservice if I said Mormonism is Christian because it's a lie. American evangelical Christianity. We're going to go after its politicking. We're gonna go after its demands. We're gonna go after its culture. We're going to go after its doctrine relative to what the Bible says. I do not believe any Christian has the right to demand that another believer receive such man-made terms or creeds or demands us to receive anything else. So I'm not going to get into a war with with other believers over doctrine. I'm not gonna do it. That is the opposite of what we're told to do. We're told to love, but think and go to God and open up your scripture and search and let's try to figure this out together and let's cast off anything that is not biblical. In the end, we hope this couple will be able to produce a little baby we call Truth. 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 we're going to jack in sandy utah jack you're on heart of the matter oh
2: hi jack uh is uh hillsong true christianity
1: well wait a second you called me jack i'm sean
2: no no you said hey jack i thought you were talking to me
1: oh i was jack is hillsong true christianity i don't know are they in australia
2: uh no it's a church that's in uh southern california
1: i don't know anything about them I I, I would say a church is not Christian, though. I would say the people in it are Christian. So, hard to answer that one.
2: Okay. Thank you. You're very welcome.
1: (laughs) Jack is not from Sandy, Utah, according to our operators and Derek. So, I don't know what that was. I really hope it wasn't my dad. Okay. From the moors of Ireland, we get an email. I've been long following your ministry a long time. I find your teaching challenging. Love what you say. I found my beliefs evolving so much. I don't seem to fit into any church. It seems the more I study and search for truth, the further I am from mainstream Christianity. I'm more comfortable searching and questioning on my own. But I do miss having discussions with other Christians as I feel we have a lot to learn from each other. The reason for my email is that... Quiet back there, please. We're having a show. Um, that is I won't go into this we have a problem with one of our very vocal operators Uh, the reason for my email is that although I feel like I'm a member of your church in an online sense so she watches the the, uh, stuff online I am wondering does your church have any sort of Bible study I could join online do you think there would be any members of the church that would be interested in a virtual Bible study through Skype or Google Hangouts I don't understand all this language I'm pretty limited in my church options here in rural Catholic Ireland. So, you know, I want to put that out to you. If you are part of uh, the group that watches online on Sundays, if you have tech skills, if you come here too and you want to get part of something to start it up with, we have a lot of people from different parts of the world and they kind of get what we talk about, but there's nothing they can do. Um, Reach out to them. Let's see if we can form something. I can't do it. So if you you have the skills, please consider that and see if the Lord leads you. Uh, One thing she does say is, uh, should I just abandon going to church altogether because I don't agree with everything that the church teaches? Claire, uh, every church is going to teach you doctrines that are false, including campus. The things you listen to online, I'm going to say stuff that's wrong. Uh, And so uh, it's the body that's true. So what you're really doing by going to that facility is you are meshing with other like-minded believers, and that's what it's about. It's about that fellowship you have with other believers and the friends and the social contacts you make when you go to church on Sunday. The pastor, he, they're going to come and go, and they're going to say all kinds of things. There's no, He doesn't have any more authority than the people sitting next to you. In fact, the people sitting next to you might have more I'm not suggesting you rise up and go against him, but I'm just saying, don't expect the church to be a bastion of complete truth and just keep hopping around because you can't find, they're all gonna be problematic. But go and make friends and you're gonna, you're gonna develop some relationships with people that will be marvelous. So don't exclude yourself uh, from the community just because no one seems to do it exactly how, how you see it. I hope that helps. Wild Thought here taught by William M., Greetings, brother. Just watch the video. Sigh. Uh, he's talking about the uh, the video where uh, the Trinity. I got. We called it the Inquisition video. The bottom line is the mystery is not how three persons are one God, but how one God has incrementally revealed Himself to His creation. He says, angelic and humanity alike. I've never thought of this. He says for I am not persuaded that just as God was manifested in the flesh and men received him not for who he really was that he had also manifested himself in celestial form and the angels likewise did not fully grasp all that God was this is interesting he said for Satan if Satan had known God was more than what he appeared to be before him on the throne he would not have foolishly tried to usurp his power Now, that's an interesting concept. I've always wondered, how could Satan, who's in the presence of God Almighty, somehow think that he could take the glory? And so maybe to the angels, God is no more as readily apparent, except for the ones right around the throne. I don't know, but it's a really curious thought. Uh, And he says, this is why God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels. He says. That's an interesting thing. It's a little deep. Uh, if you get it, take it, think about it, we'll talk about it. Uh, this is from the guy who was questioning us about the financial side of the ministry. He had some other things. He said, Sean, I've been concerned. You know, I hate that word when someone starts that off. I, I just, I'm sorry. I, it, maybe it's just my recalcitrant, rebellious nature, but when someone says, I'm really, I have a concern. I just want to say, take your concern and smoke it, dude. Why are you concerned about anything in my life or anyone else's life? Why do you have a concern about anybody except someone who's in need and, and for love or food or water or first aid? But then, you know, when it's like a, a moral issue or a difference of opinion on doctors, I have a concern. I'm really concerned about Sean McCraney. I, I, God, I just get a life. I mean, the call you received from Jeff, he says, I am concerned about where you are going to. The call revealed your insecurities and exposing, exposed a dangerous place that you are finding yourself in. Uh, your body language spoke loudly, too. Now, if you recall, we had a caller named Jeff two weeks ago. We got in a little argument over the phone, and I, I was pretty aggressive with him. Last week, I explained why I was, because Jeff was a guy in disguise, feigning to be something. But the fact that my body language said it, yes, when you are in defense mode, you take a certain position. So if my body language revealed it, so be it. I mean, (laughs) what do you want me to be? I, I, I mean, I don't know how to please some of you guys. You look for anything to pick things apart. Now my body language is not pleasing you, you know? I was too aggressive. You could see in my, well, yeah, when you're in a debate, your body language, that's a natural thing that happens, you know? I'm not gonna feign perfect body language when I argue just to please you. And then, To say that you are only accountable to God is a telling cop out. Okay, what's the deal with these dudes and accountability? Uh, Why does everyone wanna be accountable to each other? What do you want me to be accountable to you or anybody else for? What is it exactly, do you wanna know if I masturbate? I mean, do you wanna know if, do you wanna know if I drink one too many scotches? Should I be accountable to you for that? Is it, should I be accountable because I don't tuck my shirt in, the music we play? What do you want accountability from me for? What do you think you can offer to me in your wisdom as a man with armpits and stinks, just like me, that I should listen to you and build our ministry around what you think? Why do you think that is so important? Why do you guys walk around massaging each other's backs in your accountability groups and act like you think you're accomplishing something? And to say that when I say I'm accountable to God is a cop out. How could you say that? I am saying this in front of him. I'm saying I'm accountable to him. So I take it pretty seriously. I mean, to say that's a cop out is like saying he doesn't matter. Men do. You guys are freaking insane. You're just insane. Uh, also interested in your appeals for money are growing something you initially disdained in other ministries. I still disdain it. I wish we'd never had to do it. I wish I was independently wealthy. I would never take a cent. Uh, I don't know how our appeals are growing. I'm not gonna justify or defend the appeals. That's an old, old story. Uh, but all, you're just looking for something and it just proves it. If you just kind of hung out with us and you came and heard, and you kind of lightened up on your approach to everybody else in the world, you might enjoy what we do, you know, and you might learn something. Uh, Got this. Sean, oh, wait, we got a call. Let's go to Mark in Salt Lake City. Mark, you're on Heart of the Matter.
2: Hi, Sean. This is Mark. Um, I was at campus Sunday this week. What I wanted to propose is on the parable of the talents. Mm -hmm. Usually... When you hear that talked about in church, the pastor will talk about how much you're supposed to give to the church or what you're supposed to do with your financial investments. And, but if you'll read it, I propose and what I've heard from good teachers is that um, God, God has given us each a measure of faith or a portion of God. He's given to every, everyone on this planet, every corner of the earth, some knowledge of God what we do with that is what jesus is talking about Mm. and the only one that was judged at the very end is the one that judged the the master and said i judge you cruel master because i judged you as a a cruel man and Mm. so i buried my talent so there was an element of fear there where he buried his talent and he was the one that was judged Mm. but um that's a i think a really applies to what you're talking about tonight. You know, what do we do with this judgment issue and who's, who's in and who's out?
1: I love it, Mark. Your insights are always great when I meet you in person. Thank you so much for sharing, my brother.
2: Thank you. Good night.
1: Bye-bye. Uh, listen, we have, uh, this is an interesting story. Wendy, um, she gave this to me. Um, it's about a church. I won't say the name of the church yet. And apparently there was a woman, Barbara Day, the daughter of 93-year-old Olivia Blair, had always planned to bury her mother at the blank church that she had been attending for 50 years. But the pastor refused to bury Blair because she hadn't paid her tithes. (laughs) The woman says it was like the greatest insult in the world. Day said her only wish was for her mother to be buried in the church that she loved and worshipped all her life, even as a little girl. Day said her mother had been a member of the church for five decades, had been sick for the past ten years, in a coma for the last two years, and so the preacher uh, says she would he would not perform the burial because. Uh, Blair was no longer a member of the church because she had not supported it financially in the last 10 years. Um, we poke a lot of fun at the LDS and their demands for tithing. and uh, and But I got to tell you, having been LDS, while the demands are there, and yeah, it's a business and it's a business model, and they call you in for tithing settlement at the end of the year. It's, uh, it's the same thing here, you know, churches and, you know, really the people who are paying money to a church or to a whatever ministry, they are giving money to help those people who don't have any. Probably in most churches, 80% of the people don't give. They probably don't have the extra money. And usually it's like the 10 or 20% who are in a position, usually. Sometimes not, sometimes it, it is the, uh, the widow's might. But those people are subsidizing the people in the church who can't give financially but who also give in many, many other ways. Money is just only one element of being in the body. It's only one way to help and support. And it probably is uh, far less important in comparison to faith and and kindness and love and service and friendliness. And uh, it's great, you know, you need it. But uh, these these kinds of stories, we really get on the LDS for their appeals to tithing. But, you know, uh, here we have a story. Not much different, I guess. Deseret News, Todd Compton wrote a book called *In Sacred Loneliness*, and Mormon polygamy by late Richard Van Wagner. Uh, The LDS Church-owned Deseret News refused to run ads by Signature Books to sell those. They said that it was just too hot of a topic. Just to let, polygamy is just too hot of a topic. The church has come out and admitted that Joseph Smith had 40 wives. It's too hot of a topic. And Todd Compton's Sacred Loneliness, he's an LDS, faithful LDS guy who wrote a tremendous book detailing the wives of Joseph Smith. So, uh, but the Deseret News, so kind of within Mormonism right now, there's like this thing that's going on. There's a certain segment that are being forthright and open or trying to be, and there's a segment that's pulling back and saying no. And it's like the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing in terms of what direction to take with all this stuff that's coming. And so that's just one example. It happens here in Utah, and uh, I guess it will continue to. Regarding First Timothy 4.10, which says, For therefore we both labor and suffer reproach, because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially those who believe... We got an email that said, couldn't Paul also simply be stating that God is the savior of all people in a temporal sense? Believers in an eternal sense? Scripture clearly teaches elsewhere that God will not save everyone. Well, I agree to that, we've just talked about that. But I don't think Paul is talking about God being the savior of all people in a temporal sense because God does not save all people in a temporal sense. He lets uh, people have all kinds of issues and doesn't save them from death. So I think this is a spiritual sense all the way through, and I don't think you can rationalize it in the way you just attempted. You know, the truth, it's really hard to find, to want to find it, to have a desire for it, to want to find it, and then to maintain it once you've got it. It seems that we're kind of hardwired, to hear and suggest and believe what suits us, what is popular, what we've been taught our whole lives, and it is so difficult to break down. And that's why when we teach stuff, it takes so long, so much repetition, and we'll continue to get emails from people saying, but but other the scripture proves that not everyone is saved. It doesn't matter how much you repeat it. It's such a blockade. I just read a short article on Napoleon, and it's really interesting uh, he was known as the Le Petit Commander. There's my French. Napoleon, in addition to being a remarkable uh, leader, revolutionary emperor of France, uh, I mean, he got rid of slavery. He did a lot of remarkable things uh, education, rights for women. Uh, he did a lot of things in France, Napoleon. But he's known for that and also for being short. Napoleon is short. We say that short people have Napoleonic complexes. We assign it to poor Napoleon. But if we take all the factors that were surrounding the account of Napoleon, he was actually tall for his age and for his place. Did you know that? We don't hear that. And I would imagine that even sharing this tonight, there are going to be people who within the next month will say someone has a Napoleonic complex. Because we've been taught that. And we've heard that and we believe that and it makes sense and we see the pictures where he looks really little. Well, here are the reasons why they think everyone thinks he was so small. First of all, the French government had a had a qualification measurement for people who would guard Napoleon. And they had to be giants. So they were really big guys. And so wherever he went, when people saw him, he looked really, really small. The second thing was, they said he was five foot two but that was in French units. Really, he was almost five foot seven, which in his day was two inches taller than the average male. Did you know that? Are you hearing me when I share just this little thing about Napoleon? Or are you gonna walk around and still think of him as Mr. Midge? You know, because that's what we do. We cling to things because it makes life simple. We don't have to be disturbed. You're short, you're Napoleon. You have a Napoleonic complex. That's not it. I mean, can we get to? The, we forget it, and it's unfair, and it's untrue, and it's unfair to him and his legacy. But yet we embrace it, and it's the same thing we do with biblical truths that we've established in our brains. We say no, no, no! I cling, cling, cling. You're wrong. You're wrong. We do it with everything, and it's a really interesting and fascinating thing. I want to end with years ago. Uh, our ministry was um, assailed with a guy here in Utah who went in his backyard and made four or five videos. And his complaint against me was, Sean McCraney is a syncretist. Uh, A term that he uses, pejorative term, believing that I was betraying the purity of Christianity by attempting to amalgamate the tenets of Mormonism with Christianity into one. Ecumenical is kind of another dirty word that is used for uh, being a syncretist today. I would reject the titles and simply say that we're trying to toss anything that's bad, anything that's bad, no matter who brings it to the table, anything that's bad out the window while retaining anything that's good that these respective groups, whoever they are, bring to the table. And when I say good, I mean true. That's all we're doing. 2015 is going to be one of our most ambitious attempts since we've been doing uh, these shows. To try to bring some consolation between the Mormon Christian debate, I'm really excited about it. It's going to uh, be a little bit more intellectual than uh, usual, but it was really going to get to the root issues between those two regarding everything uh, that the two groups believe. So stay with us next week. We're going to continue on talking about eternal punishment. We'll wrap that up in two or three weeks. We'll see you next week here on Heart of the Matter.
0: Good job I'm on the right The dawn's waiting till a hundred monkeys know, and I can feel the light-filled monkeys start